Vaccines, vaccines, vaccines. Aren't you sick about hearing about vaccines? This one makes a template of this, that one copies one of these, this one puts something dead in your arm and other things try to kill the dead thing in your arm. When there's so many options out there, how does someone who's building a vaccine even decide what they want to do? Or what they want the vaccine to do? Knowing what to do is certainly not my specialty. My name is Louis Colortolo, and I am a PhD student in the food science department at the University of Guelph trying to, well, decide what to do. So I like to talk to other graduate students that hopefully have a little bit of a better idea of what they're doing and discuss what they're studying. And today we are talking with Bianca Lepe, who studies what vaccine makers are studying. Sometimes when making a vaccine, we want to be able to target specific proteins in order to elicit an immune response. But how do we know which proteins to make? Well, Bianca is doing her best to figure that out. And she's not interviewing proteins across the world. She's using artificial intelligence to figure it out. So technically, she doesn't really actually know what she's looking for just yet. But she knows she's looking. And since she doesn't really know what she's looking for, and I certainly barely know what I'm doing over here, keep in mind while listening that we're both graduate students. We're doing our best to learn as we go. And we don't know everything, which is why you're listening to another episode of We Know Some Stuff. Hi, Bianca. How are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing well. How are you? I am doing good over here. Could you do us a favor and walk us through your educational history? Of course. Um, so I grew up in Los Angeles, uh, California. And I originally attended um, my undergrad at Caltech, which is actually not too far away from where I grew up. So Caltech's in Pasadena, California. Um, and actually, the secret there is that my mother had asked me not to go too far uh, for my undergrad because she wanted me close. So it was one of the few times that I actually listened to her <laughs> and followed what she wanted, much to her happiness. Um, so I was there for four years and I did my undergrad degree in biological engineering. Um, I also did a double major in sort of like business and economics, just because I was fascinated sort of with the commercialization aspect of things as well. Um, and then from there, I went as far away from my hometown as possible uh, and went to the United Kingdom. Um, so I did two masters while I was there um, under the Marshall Scholarship which basically brings about 30 to 40 Americans for their graduate degrees every year um, to help strengthen connection between the United States and the United Kingdom. Um, this scholarship was actually made post like World War II as a thank you to the United States um, and our community. Um, so while I was there, I lived in Scotland for a year and I did a master's in systems and synthetic biology which is a, a sort of subset of um, biological engineering. Um, and from there, I was fascinated with the policy aspects around science and around engineering. So I spent my second year at the University of Cambridge in England, uh, where I studied technology policy. And I got to see how government interacts with business, interacts with like the research enterprise. Um, and now I'm back here in the United States in Boston, Massachusetts, and I'm at MIT for my PhD, um, also in biological engineering. So it, to me, sounds like you've been in school forever. <laughs> yes. Uh, my parents are consistently asking me, so when are you going to get a real job? So, yeah. <laughs> I, 
you know, I say the same thing. I say, like, I've never had a big boy job. Like, I'm... <laughs> it's, it's frightening. Yes. Um, it's definitely something. I, you know, I did, I did a job while I was in high school um, to help pay for university. So I have a little bit of experience there. Um, and uh, on a whim, when I was living in the UK, I was like, you know, it'd be really fun to work at a cafe as I'm doing you know, my master's degrees. So I did that just to, you know, get to know locals and understand yeah. um, the local. That's very better. bohemian, right? Like, oh, I, I go to university <laughs> and I work at the local cafe. I mean, I worked at a grocery <laughs> store for like six years part time. You know, it's just a very fascinating venue to just get to know people. Um, you get to know sort of people's daily quirks, what side of, so I was at a cafe, so I got to know people's orders with their coffee and they chat with me about how their day's going um, I think it's very different and and gives you a reality check, if you will, on the community where your university is at. Right. So then, uh, I I don't know. Like, what's the coffee behave? Well, I, it was a cafe, right? I'm not necessarily coffee because we're in England right now. So so this was probably a lot more tea than coffee. Um, you know, <laughs> you would think, but no. Um, it was actually more so coffee. I mean, every once in a while, we'd ask, like we'd get some a customer who'd want tea, um, but for the most part, it was coffee, which also surprised me. Yeah, no, I'm 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 well surprised here. Uh, so now, then, you found your way back—not way back, but you you found your way significantly more west, uh, closer to California, but still pretty far away from California in yes. Boston. Yes, in Boston, much colder than Los Angeles, but luckily I had much. the buffer of the UK to sort of step my way up to this level of coldness <laughs> true definitely colder but like less dreary because doesn't uk have like so much rain mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so the biggest difference is um you know it's gray all the time in the uk uh but at least when it's cold here in massachusetts uh, a lot of the times it may also be sunny which is a nice change of pace <laughs> yeah 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 and those those days are the good days exactly yeah. All right. So, so you, you got yourself back to uh, the States. Mm -hmm. You're on the East Coast and you're still doing biological engineering, but you're in a PhD program now. Yes, I am. Uh, how much, uh, honestly, like, let's be for real right now. How much more knowledge is there out for you to learn? I feel like you learn most of everything already. <laughs> you would think, but no, there's always more to learn. Um, so I may have decided that, you know, for my PhD, I really wanted to delve into a topic that I didn't know quite as much about. So I decided not only to focus more on the computational side of things, so I had to take a few classes to learn about, for example, machine learning, which is a technique used to analyze data. Um, but I also decided uh, I wanted to go more into immunology, which uh, up until now, I have not actually delved in uh, in quite as much detail. So I feel like I'm actually learning every day. Um. <laughs> yeah, and and that that that's crazy that there's so many like uh, subsets of what you can possibly be doing in any one field. Yeah, and and walk into a completely unknown situation. I mean, I I am a food scientist. I have no idea anything about bacteria. Please don't ask me. Yeah, I have no idea at all, and I just don't even touch that field uh, as it is. So, so you went into immunology. Uh, what what do you do? Yeah, so um, 
I, I guess I should preface by saying, you know, biological engineers, we can be in a lot of different subfields, uh, you know, ranging from more of the human health, immunology side of things. And that could even be like researching diseases as well as, for example, making medical devices. Um, but we can also range sort of in other areas where I was previously like synthetic biology, where you're trying to manipulate um, bacteria, for example, uh, genetically so that they do something different. And, you know, people use that a lot, for example, to speed up processes chemically. But yeah, I'm currently in immunology now. Uh, I'm in a lab that uh, is very concerned with tuberculosis as a disease. So we're trying to understand why this disease has been so prevalent for so long. Um, There's so many aspects we don't understand. Um, and within tuberculosis, I look at actually vaccine design. Um, and this is a, a recent endeavor, you know, as we all know, this past year has been um, a wild ride in terms of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, but one thing that has been at least super helpful from a researcher standpoint is there are a lot more tools to delve to uh, vaccine development. And because some of these tools have been developed, I'm trying to then use them um, and change them to work on tuberculosis. Yeah, and tuberculosis, it gets me. I, I always hear about tuberculosis. I'm like, oh, that's like a 1920s, like 1800s disease. But uh, I, I mean, I had to get the TB test before I went to, God, I think school, like in like back in like 2011 or something, when I first went to like college, I had to get a TB test. Yeah, and so I guess, you know, in the United States and in other developing countries, um, tuberculosis really isn't quite as big of a problem for us. You know, a lot of people get vaccinated when they're a child um, under a vaccine called BCG. Um, but what we've noticed in uh, research is that this vaccine, while it has been very helpful, um, isn't quite as efficient or um, isn't quite as good of a vaccine as we want it to be, especially in countries where TB is more prevalent. Um, and in countries where they might be exposed to similar but not the same bacteria as TB. Um, and that's been shown basically uh, <laughs> to sort of null the vaccine to begin with. Um, so especially if you're getting the vaccine as an adult, it's not quite as robust uh, of a response as we want. Right. And vaccines are such a hot topic right now. You can't you can't like open up any social media, anything without seeing a little bit of news about vaccines. Exactly. Um, and and rightfully so. They are ridiculously important things. Yes. Yes. And, you know, as we're seeing a lot of vaccines coming out for covid, what's been super interesting is we're seeing a lot of different mechanisms of uh, getting the vaccine into the human body. So um, we have mRNA vaccines now, which are essentially a blueprint of some of the proteins of the virus. And we're showing it to our body and saying, look, this is what you have to look out for. Whereas, you know, previous vaccines have been versions that are, you know, similar, but have certain proteins killed off. So it's not quite as um, strong as the original uh, virus or disease that kind of thing. Um, but my work, rather than focusing on the mode of giving the vaccine, we're focusing on, okay, but what what parts of uh, 
in our case, bacteria do we need to show to the body to produce an immune response um, that's efficacious? Yeah, I'm I'm all about figuring out, okay, which proteins we even need to include in the first place. Um, and what's funny is that no one has actually done that analysis yet, even from the, the vaccine that we've had for 100 years, BCG. Wait, seriously? Yeah, it's, it's really strange. There has been this whole train of thought that, oh, BCG isn't as good as we thought it would be, so we need to, you know, focus on creating something new. And then recently there's been some papers that have come out saying, well, actually, if you give this vaccine in the form of IV rather than like a shot, let's say, it's it actually ends up being better than what we previously thought. So now in my work, I'm trying to figure out, okay, well, what of that bacteria actually produces the immune response that we're seeing in the first place? All right. So, so when you are trying to treat something, when you're trying to give someone immunity to something, right? And I think uh, something worth clarifying is that when, when you get a vaccine, you don't want to already have the disease. You're trying to uh, prevent it from happening in the future. So you said that you present uh, a protein. Yes. Right. And, and, and that bacteria is making that protein. So what what about this protein is so important that we present it? Yeah. So essentially what happens in your body is if you have a foreign invader, um, your immune system basically uh, is alerted through them chopping up this invader. So there's little like pieces of it that get sent to particular cells in your body that then like sort of wave the flag like, you know, here's the invader, here's what it looks like, here's what you need to look out for. Um, but there are a couple of complications of that. Firstly, all of the little chopped up pieces don't necessarily give as big of a response necessarily. There's a gradation there. Um, and part of that is because, you know, the cells that do this, the, the particular protein portions in your cells that do this, um, they come in a variety of different types called alleles. And there are different uh, distributions of these alleles, these types, uh, depending on the population that you're looking at. So um, you might have, uh, you know, a particular subsection that works really well, let's say, for the United States population, but may not work as well to get a response in uh, India or in China. Um, so there are a lot of different complications there. Um, and one thing that's really interesting is we can use uh, computational techniques to try and predict what that looks like. Okay, so let me solve the entire issue right now, and you're going to tell me why this won't work. All right, we take one tuberculosis, one little bacteria, we put them in a blender, we separate all the proteins out, and then we just find a vaccine that works for every single one of those proteins. Done. I don't know why this is still a problem. Ooh, no, no, no. So, um... Okay. I should also say that one other thing that complicates the situation, uh, for example, let's take COVID-19, which is a virus that has been going around. So uh, a virus has to use the, the host, aka the human's sort of cellular machinery in order to reproduce. Tuberculosis, however, uh, being bacteria, they can use their own internal machinery to do everything. Um, and that's something that means that we don't necessarily see all of those proteins, all of those chopped up bits, like our immune system doesn't necessarily see all of them, whereas they, they do in viruses. Um, so we 
could, for example, choose a, a fragment and say, this is what we're going to put in the vaccine. This is what we're going to give to people. But then if people were actually exposed to tuberculosis, they might not be seeing that. So it might not be a good enough flag to say the invaders here. So uh, to summarize, right, you get this little bacteria and he's making all kinds of proteins and stuff. And it's like, hello, I'm in your body. I'm, I'm making stuff. And we want to be able to find the stuff. And when we find the stuff, we're like, OK, let's kill him. Yeah. Let's kill him. Exactly. But our little friend, well, he's not our friend. Um, <laughs> the invader. Our little our, our nemesis, yes. we're going to go with that. Nemesis. Our nemesis is not always making the same exact proteins the entire time that it's in your body. Right. So we don't always see the proteins that they are making. So um, we might not be getting the blueprint, let's say, that tells us this is what we need to attack. And in addition, you know, the reason why we have vaccines in the first place is because you know, there can be a delay in terms of the body's response to an invader. So we want to shorten that by priming someone with a blueprint beforehand. And then on top of that, you said that there are different variants in different parts of the world. Yes. So the variants are um, in our immune system machinery. Um, So we have proteins that help identify who these invaders are. But because, you know, there's genetic diversity within the human population, um, those proteins are a little bit different in different people. It just means that like the types of, for example, combinations that can be made. So when a protein recognizes another protein, there's an interaction that's had chemically. It just means that these chemical interactions are slightly different. So different fragments of the invader Um, could adhere to a human's, uh, we call it the MHC complex, um, differently. And so some might be stronger, some might be less strong. What vaccines do is they try and find proteins that kind of initiate this response pretty well for most people. So from my earlier, which was like, I don't know, what, seven minutes ago, I said we just stick it in a blender and we found all the proteins and we go from there. From there all the way until now, (laughs) this seems like a really big problem, Bianca. It is. Okay, yes, I admit it is. And I'm still at the stage where we're sort of in the blender situation. Oh, you're still, you're in the blender, gotcha. Yeah, we're in the blender. And the reason why we're still in the blender is because lo and behold, it costs a lot of money to, for example, test um, different vaccines. I mean, you've seen this with COVID. Uh, That's what's been really amazing. Uh, You know, there's been a lot of money invested in it and a lot of volunteers, uh, you know, in the trials. For tuberculosis, we don't have that infrastructure. Um, and we're at the stage where, you know, we're still trying to pick out which proteins we want to include in the vaccine to begin with. So what we do to try and narrow down sort of that big landscape, if you will, is we use a lot of different computational algorithms. Um, and so there are different research groups all over the world who have studied in the last like 20, 20 plus years ways of predicting, okay, what what will actually bind. So all of those different variations they talked about in terms of the human population, they're all the work that they've been doing is okay, for these fragments, what will actually bind to all of those different variations of the MHC complex in humans? You know, my colleagues and I are taking those tools that are already built and looking at what types of predictions are happening, saying, can we actually just using that 
narrow down the scope beforehand, before we even get to, you know, actual experimentation in uh, different, uh, like, mouse models or in people. Yeah, so you're you're kind of uh, screening potentials by using machine learning. <laughs> yes, it's exactly the case. All right, so uh, I'm trying to picture you're like wearing a black hoodie in a dark room in a basement, and you're like typing furiously on the keyboard. Am I right? Am I on the right track? Yeah. How do you use machine learning? Yeah, so machine learning, and I know that this is like a fancy term that a lot of people are, are usually in awe with, but... At the end of the day, machine learning essentially helps you identify patterns that you can't as a person just because, you know, the amount of data you have is way too large. So uh, right now we're looking what what sorts of binding patterns are coming up. Um, and if you can imagine uh, you have a little grid like a QR code type of thing, we're trying to see, OK, are we seeing for the for the proteins that are considered good binders, are we seeing certain patterns, certain QR code patterns showing up? And for the bad binders, are we just not seeing anything? Um, so that's sort of where I'm at now, trying to identify uh, which proteins would be good candidates. Um, and there are certain things that we can do at the moment to help sort of disentangle any noise that we might see in the data. Um, but at the end of the day, what this will help us do is narrow down the proteins so we can start doing actual experimentation. And that's when we'll know for sure whether or not the proteins are good binders. Yeah. And this is, it's kind of a tough concept to sort of wrap your brain around, but you can mathematically calculate how something interacts with something else. Yes. All the way down to the atoms in the, the protein itself. Exactly. And that's what a lot of the algorithms that I am sort of uh, co-opting from other groups, that's what they do to begin with, is that they have uh, mathematical ways of being able to say, okay, well, we know from our, uh, you know, back in the day, our chemistry classes in high school, even in undergrad, if you were in STEM, uh, we know that, you know, certain molecules um, bind to each other and have certain interactions. So we can then use that to predict, okay, well, will this fragment, which has X, Y, and Z, bind with this fragment that has A, B, and C? Yeah, and, and it's so it's so complex because, you know, we, we go from like one atom likes this other atom and these two atoms like this atom, but then we get to things with thousands and thousands and millions and billions of atoms. Yes. So imagine the data that comes from this. Yes. How much? It's, it's a lot. It's a lot. And even within machine learning, there are different types of algorithms that you can use so one thing that I, I haven't yet done, but I'm really excited about is um, there is a subset of machine learning called natural language processing, which essentially, like if you imagine uh, you have a book at hand, which has a bunch of paragraphs, um, there are mathematical models that can look at those patterns and then figure out, for example, grammar and different contexts. Um, and what's interesting is that you can use very similar techniques, but instead of having the English language in a book, let's say you have proteins uh, as the language. So the amino acids that create a protein can be uh, used as the words. Um, and you can use this technique to try and figure out what that protein grammar is. 
Um, and so something I haven't tried yet, but I'm very excited to do is to use that to see if we can uncover any of that grammatical context, if you will. Yeah, and uh, each protein, it really is like the length of Moby Dick. <laughs> like every protein, it's a book. It is, it is. So there's a lot of uh, good data to sort of put in to the algorithm, um, which is which is nice because usually in biology, you can imagine, um, you know, there are contexts where you don't have as many uh, data points. For instance, like if I were to do blood work, um from you know volunteers that give us blood that have tb you know there's there's only so many uh, volunteers and, and so much you can get at a time but here in this case we sort of have uncovered uh and and know about the genome of the bacteria as well as the proteins that are derived from it so we have a lot of context for for our machine learning algorithms to learn from yeah. So, all right. If we let's 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 do a hypothetical. If we removed machine learning, if we said like we are no longer going to use uh, the the green letters that you know trickle down the screen, uh, we say that we're we're completely not going to use this. Mm-hmm. That would mean that your job in testing the potentials would be so much larger. Yes. Yes. So if we take TB as our example. There are around 4,000 proteins that are associated with this bacteria, which is a lot. And (laughs) How many grad students would it take? Yeah, spoiler alert, uh, we do not have enough money to go and test every single one of those 4,000 proteins. We just don't, we don't have enough human power, time, money to do that. Um, And sort of what was done before machine learning was a trial and error, like, oh, we've noticed, we happen to you know, come upon this protein that seems to have a response. Let's go further in the testing for vaccines here. Trial and error can only get you so far when you have 4,000 choices. This, this is, this will hopefully speed up that process by a lot. Yeah. All right. Okay. So now we've uh, cut it down to, I don't know, would you say like 400 is reasonable? 40 is reasonable? Like what is, do you have a goal? Yeah. So if we, um, you know, the, the end goal is uh, a vaccine that we want to deliver to patients, right? And if you take a look at the COVID-19 vaccines, you see basically um, subunit vaccines, which is a, a particular mechanism, a particular type that have anywhere between like three to nine proteins. So eventually we wanna get it down that small. But in terms of the experimental testing phase, we can have in the like hundreds, for example, which is still a big reduction from 4,000, but- Yeah, yeah, that's like multi-fold reduction. Exactly. So, you know, we we do wanna get it down really small, but yeah, I would say in, in the hundreds. Okay, so you've identified 100, 200, 300-ish of these potential candidates. What are we doing next? Yeah, so, whoa. (laughs) And this also involves more of our lovely machine learning type of techniques. Uh, But what we can do is from those, like, let's say 100, just for simplicity's sake, of the 100 proteins we have now, we've tested to see if it would bind or not but we also want to build up subsets that could work for particular populations. Because remember I said, you know, everyone has different responses because the protein machinery that they have in their immune system is slightly different from other people's. 
So what we can do is we can say, okay, given our smaller search space, if you will, can we start building those vaccines, which I said were about three to nine proteins? Can we start building different subsets of, of the hundred that could uh, potentially help target specific populations? Um, and the reason why this is important kind of goes back to what I said earlier, which is that, you know, in the United States, we don't have to worry about tuberculosis as much, but in other countries, um, such as South Africa, such as India, they, it, it, you know, it's a bigger problem for them. So what we can do is we can say, well, we know what the different distributions are of their MHC complexes. So let's start building subunits that target that specific type of distribution. And you can do that mathematically and you can also take into account uncertainty as well, meaning like there might be some variations that your, you know, uh, computational method doesn't account for. You can say, okay, here's how much certainty I have with this prediction. And that that also helps narrow it down as well. Yeah. So is the goal to then make like a specific, like, all right, you, you fill out this checklist and uh, you're from this population, you're, you're this gender, da, 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 in order to get like a tailored vaccine to some degree? Or are you trying to make one vaccine that it just addresses all of the problems? Yeah. So you can, I think, do either way. Um, and I think what we're envisioning is more so a little bit tailored, in particular to uh, countries where TB is most problematic. Uh, and so that's sort of our end goal. But you can imagine you can take this a step further and have like more tailored versions of vaccines. As we've seen with COVID, there's there's a trade-off. So we we do want vaccines that can cover as many people as possible because it is quite costly, um, not only to you know, the initial research, but also to, you know, build it out, uh, the production, and then actually getting it to folks and getting it to patients. Okay, so, all right, we've selected which proteins we like, we've selected which proteins we're going to target, we've narrowed down a whole bunch. Uh, what are we doing next? Is this when we strap on some gloves and start pipetting things? Yes, it is. And that's where I'll have to basically call in some of my colleagues who do uh, this type of work because they are the experts in this. So I would be a little bit lost if, if I was thrown into the laboratory to do all of this. Luckily at my university, we have a very um, robust community. So we have a lot of people that can help out and do that next step. I'd like to talk about something because, you know, we, we spent a good amount of time today uh, talking about, okay, uh, the vaccine in this region, the vaccine in that region. Uh, you know, there's more tuberculosis over here. There's less over here. Uh, there has to be a significant equity portion of vaccine development. Do you know anything about that? Yeah. So vaccine development, um, <laughs> well... Okay, I should probably say, you know, there's a reason why there is no tuberculosis vaccine at the moment. Not only because, you know, biologically speaking, the disease is quite interesting and like there are a lot of things in immunology we don't know yet, which is why we don't know um, how to combat the disease necessarily, but also in terms of money, the resources, the time allocated to creating this vaccine. Um, you know, because it's a disease that primarily affects developing countries, um, it's not necessarily prioritized, um, for example, by U.S.-based 
uh, firms or uh, funding agencies necessarily. So uh, that in and of itself is an equity issue, right? Um, and that's sort of why I'm really excited to take advantage of all of these new tools that have been developed when they are creating the COVID vaccine, because they can now be retailed to some of these other instances, other diseases, um, and hopefully help move things forward there. Yeah, and and I think that that uh, if anything somewhat positive comes from this big talk of vaccines is that it's going to potentially not only make your job easier, but also more effective. Yes, exactly. And hopefully we can, you know, start helping out folks from um, other parts of the world that really need it. Yeah, and there are so many diseases out there. Like There are, there are. And like, what's exciting about what I'm doing is that you can imagine if it ends up working pretty well, we can then now tailor it to other infectious diseases like malaria, for instance, which also, um, from what I understand, does not have a robust vaccine developed for it either. So I honestly, it's 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 a beautiful thing because you're not just contributing to tuberculosis vaccine. Mm-hmm. You are developing new methods to even think about thinking about making new vaccines. Yes, it's super exciting. And, uh, you know, I really enjoy my field of biological engineering because we're sort of, um, we have a hodgepodge of everything. We're the the cookout, the barbecue, and we, we have all sorts of um, different dishes at hand that we can use. Um, so that's why, you know, I'm able to work on bridging um, sort of the more biology, immunology focused questions and techniques with the computational work. Um, and in fact, I'm, I'm a part of two different labs for that very reason. I have my uh, primary appointment in a biological engineering lab, um, but then I have a secondary appointment in um, a computer science lab. Oh, wow. So, yeah, and I think that that, that is uh, a big thing in science is just the collaboration because it should, it. let's say it, if it hasn't been set out yet, uh, we don't know everything. We don't. We really don't. Uh, I don't know. Um, perhaps other people in research and even beyond that must feel this feeling every once in a while, but sometimes I'm like, oh, I really don't know anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that is a, that's a big thing. So you you have to rely on collaborations with people who know what they're doing in order to get anything done. Exactly, exactly. So yeah, in fact, uh, in my computational lab, what's been really exciting is that they were at the forefront of one of the techniques that's trying to help improve the COVID vaccine. So um, I get to work with those folks um, and think about you know my personal uh, problem, which is tuberculosis, but. It's been really exciting. Yeah, that 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 is a. Uh, it's really some like cutting edge stuff that you're doing over there, and uh, it's stuff that's only very recently able to do. Yeah, right. Machine learning was such a non-topic a few years ago. Yes, yes, and it, I mean, th- actually, thank goodness I was in school for so long because basically it enabled me to fall into sort of this line of work. Um, you know, because had I started any earlier. Um, you know, the fields wouldn't have been developed enough to be able to do this sort of uh, collaboration, if you will. Um, so I'm, I'm really happy in, in that regard. Wow, yeah, yeah, because uh, things are happening and things are happening fast. Um, I mean, I've even like started doing machine learning for food science. Like, what, what, are we, what, what are we even doing anymore? 
<laughs> yeah, no, it's it's super fun. And like, I know machine learning kind of could can seem daunting. And I, it at least was for me at the beginning, because as a biological engineer, I was like, I'm not a computer science what, scientist. Like, what do I know? But there is a lot of uh, interesting tutorials that one could do online just to take a peek to see what it's like. And I know some some people use it to visualize their social media just for fun, just to see what's happening. Um, but I'm really grateful for this line of work because it's been very instrumental in um, bioengineering and biology as a whole, just helping us parse through our large amount of data. Yeah, and I, I think uh, you touched on something that I think is one of the best parts of all of this, is that the resources to learn how to do these things are completely available online and for the most part free yep uh, it's not easy <laughs> i mean like ugh, just because it's free doesn't mean it's gonna be easy but there are tools that you could use today to start learning how to code exactly and i would say you know it's more about like you don't need to be a genius to to know how to code to understand machine learning you just have to uh consistently uh persist at it which is what I do because I, when I, I mean, I started off, I did not know how to code at all. Um, I feel like I'm sort of middling level at best at the moment, but you know, I'm working on it to, to try and improve my skills there. Um, and it's something that I, I am personally, I, I really feel like having some sort of data science, like analyst skills are really important nowadays, now that everything is online and computational almost as another form of, of literacy uh, as well. Yeah, that is definitely uh, the way that we are going uh, in the future is uh, there's a lot. Of, you know, I the other day, I I um, actually was it was about a year ago. I was in Connecticut and I and I drove past a uh, kindergarten that was advertising itself as a coding kindergarten. Oh, like they were like, gosh. yeah, they were teaching like five year olds like coding. And, 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 you know, you could see the clientele that was going in there. They were like, ah, yes, my child's going to create the next Amazon. <laughs> that Okay. Uh, I can, I'm just like picturing a bunch of little five year olds sort of like walking around, maybe uh, <laughs> touching some keyboards or just like thinking about things. Yeah. It's adorable. Um, I yeah. almost see it as like learning another language, if you will. Um, that's I think that's what it is. They say learn the languages when you're young and coding is a language. Exactly. And and I think something that's great about at least coding specifically is that there's no one right answer. There are so many ways to get to the heart of what you're trying to do. Um, and it's always fascinating to see, like, given the same problem, what sorts of coding solutions people come up with. And it's a poetry of some sense. <laughs> and I, I was saying the other day, I was explaining to someone, they were like, oh, why do you do that? Like this, this, this. I said, well, it's like uh, writing prose. People talk about like, oh, well, I love how Dostoyevsky wrote blah, blah, blah. And I like how, you know, Emily Dickinson did it this way. But like, that's the kind of the thing about coding is that you could do it in your own style per se. Yeah, of course. Um, I was just saying, you know, coding, uh, you can have your own personal style with it. So just like with books, like if you're a cat in the hat type of person, you like the short, sweet, simple prose, you can do that in coding, be very efficient. But you know, if you like the longer sort of stories, Pride and Prejudice-esque, you can also make your coding like that too. Sort of what I like about um, the activity in and of itself is you, there's so many ways to come up with solutions and to have your own personal flair. 
Yeah, I like to write little jokes in the comments. So if like anyone's reading it, you know, a little yeah. shout out. <laughs> yeah, like, like, what was I thinking at this point? I don't know. <laughs> but at least it works. Yeah, right. Um, all right. So uh, let's wrap it up. Let's tie a nice little bow on everything. And uh, what could you tell us is kind of like the big takeaway from what you do? If we could sum it up, put a nice little bow on it, what would you say? So uh, I'm a biological engineer who focuses on tuberculosis and in particular, how to uh, create a vaccine that uh, elicits better immune responses within patients. And right now we're sort of looking into all of the bits and pieces from tuberculosis as a bacteria that could be used theoretically in a vaccine. And we're trying to narrow down that landscape as best as we can before we get into the experimental um, parts of, of this research process. Um, and it's really important we do that because, you know, that cuts down on a lot of time and money and resources spent, which we do not have to test every single protein from tuberculosis. Okay, super cool. So you are screening proteins. That That's your thing. <laughs> yes, but I use machine learning, so it's fancy. <laughs> Ah, yes. She, she fancy screens proteins, everyone. Fancy screening. <laughs> fancy screening. All right. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Uh, it honestly was such a pleasure to talk to you, Bianca. Thank you. I enjoyed this so much. Listening to today's episode made me think that maybe I'll build an artificial intelligence system in order to do my work, because we all know that I will do anything in order to do nothing. And remember, behind every artificial intelligence is a real human with some natural intelligence. And artificial intelligence isn't always right, nor is human intelligence. Which brings us to the end of the episode where we have to say that we don't know all the stuff, which is why the name of the show is We Know Some Stuff, so we'd like to do a little fact check just to brush up on a few things that may have not gone perfectly when we were talking. So to clarify a point that was made earlier in the episode, uh, Bianca was talking about the BCG vaccine. Uh, that vaccine is not really given in the United States or Canada. For the most part, it's distributed to developing nations, where the instances of TB are more likely and more prevalent. And that's the only fact check we have today, and we double-check and debugged our code a whole bunch of times, and, well, that's all the errors that we came up with. So now that this episode is over, maybe you can curl up in front of the fireplace and read a good book about the codes of protein. That's certainly something Bianca would do. And thanks for listening to another episode of We Know Some Stuff.